0: I'm going to ask you this morning to take your Bible to where we have been now for many months, the book of Ephesians, and as we finish up this book, we are in the final sort of leg of our journey. We are in chapter 6 in that section where Paul describes for us a marvelous armor by which we are able to live victoriously and display this amazing thing that God has made for us, and that God has given to us. And I'm speaking about the peace, the shalom that Christ, our Messiah, our champion, won for us. Now there are many, many of you who are listening to us online and every week I mean to say a word to you. I'm so thankful that you do. Um, We are are excited that you are part of our congregation. Many of you are members. We uh, miss you. We we thank the Lord for you, and we hope that this word will be as, as encouraging to you as it is to all of us who are here this morning together. And I want to just begin by reminding us of what we already know: that the Word of God is truth. I don't think we would question that statement. I don't think that comes as a surprise to any of you that we would actually argue that the Word of God is truth. Now, notice what I said there, I didn't just say that the word of God is true. I didn't just speak to the veracity of what's in the pages of your Bible. I'm actually arguing something a little different. I'm actually arguing that what God says is truth. It defines reality. And that's going to be a very important component if we're going to understand the piece of armor that Paul lays out for us as the first piece that you and I are to put on in this war for our soul. Now, let me just uh, make sure that as we come to understand what Paul is actually talking about, that we keep in mind the central idea in the book. And the central idea in the book is that God the Father is doing something through God the Son. The work that God the Son has accomplished and God the Spirit is securing that work in us. So there is something God the Father is doing. Whatever that is, he is doing it through the ministry, the life, the obedience, and the death, the sacrificial atonement that Jesus Christ, his son, won on the cross. And whatever that is that Jesus accomplished, the Spirit of God is securing that and applying that and strengthening that in you. And so every member of the Trinity is actually involved in whatever is at the heart of the book of Ephesians. And that's why in chapter one, beginning in verse three and going all the way down to verse 14, you see this magnificent hymn that is to every member of the Godhead. The first stanza of the hymn talks about what God the Father is doing. The second stanza talks about what God the Son has done And the third stanza talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when you understand what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are doing, here's the response. You will praise God for His glorious grace. That's what Paul said you would do. When you understand what the Trinity is up to, it is so marvelous. It is so stunning. It is so jaw-dropping that the response that will come out of your heart, almost unbidden, is, is a praise to the glorious grace of God that has wrought this. So what is it that is so stunning? And we noted this last week, didn't we? We noted that what God is really up to is restoring the universe to a condition that it enjoyed when he first created it. When he looked in Genesis 1 and 2, and particularly in Genesis 1, and at the end of every creative day, at the end of every day of creation, the Father looked at what he had done, and the writer of Scripture says, and I want you to know how God sees what he has done. And the word that the writer uses is this. When God looked and saw what he had done, he saw that it was good. Everything was where and how it should be. Everything was exactly the way it should be. And at the end of the entire creation week, now you have the beautiful earth created and a garden planted in the center of that wonderful creation. And in the heart of that garden are two image bearers who are the result of God's direct creation. And God looks at that and he says, this is very good. And the word that an Old Testament Jew would use for all of that is the word shalom. Everything is shalom. Everything is as it should be. And then you know what happens in Genesis chapter 3 that beautiful shalom, that unstained goodness, that unmarred beauty, that unencumbered blessing, that unbroken harmony and unrestrained fellowship between all of creation but particularly between the two image bearers and God, all of that has been shattered. All of that has been broken. And it all happened because an ancient enemy of God who fell in heaven was determined to bring about a similar fall on earth. And he did it through words. He used words to deceive the two image bearers who believed these false words and plunged the entire human race and all of creation under a curse. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has been working on a plan that he hasn't talked about until now. It's been a secret, but he has revealed that secret to us through the the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers. And what God is now revealing is that he has been at work reversing that curse and bringing the entire created order, both things in heaven and things on earth, back to that original condition of being good, shalom. And that's why at the beginning of Ephesians 1 and at the end of Ephesians 6, Paul talks about peace, grace, and peace be to you in chapter 1. And in chapter 6, peace be to the brothers. And then all through the book, he is going to talk about a peace that God has brought about through the ministry of the life and death of his own son, Jesus Christ. And we read about that when we were together last time in chapter 3, when uh, we read, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 2, verse 14, for he, Christ, himself is our peace. And he has brought about the first installation of that peace in us, in his people, in his church. We are the display of the shalom, the peace, the blessing, the full-orbed goodness that God intends to bring one day to the earth when his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes to rule and reign. This was prophesied, by the way, in Psalm 2. It was given as an original promise in Genesis 3.15 when God says there is a son, a seed, that is going to crush the head of this enemy who has deceived you and brought about all of this evil. He is identified as a son that will be given in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. His ministry is explained to us in Isaiah 11 as the Spirit of God rests on him. And then he is announced to us in Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And he is identified here in the book of Ephesians as our very own Lord Jesus. Jesus and he has made our peace. And that's why, at the end of the day, your marriage matters. That's why your relationship with your children and children with your parents, that's why that matters. That's why the relationship we have with one another matters. That's why the relationship we have with those that we work for and those who work for us matters. Why? Because all of those relationships become the arena where this shalom is present and is displayed to a world that has no peace and no shalom. And the Spirit of God has secured all of this for you And has opened your eyes, that's why we see at the last half of chapter 1, the Spirit of God opening your eyes and giving you insight and wisdom so that you will see this peace and understand how it came about. And more importantly, so that you will understand the reality of the power that is available to you so that you can maintain the peace and promote the peace and proclaim the peace to the world around you. And so that brings me to a question. If God has done all of this, if God the Father has worked out this plan and God the Son has accomplished the plan and we are actually, by by the securing that the Spirit of God has done for us and the indwelling of that Spirit, not only enlightened to the plan, but we're also now the first recipients of what that peace is in the world. And we have been given the empowerment of the Spirit to, to maintain that peace If that's all true, if God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have been at work doing all this, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Why is this peace so easily fractured in our lives? I mean, think about how quickly conditions in your marriage can go from shalom to chaos or conflict. I mean, sometimes it's with a word. Sometimes it's it's with a, it, Sometimes it's with, without a word. Sometimes it's not saying something and it's like... Th- think about how at the beginning of a day you can get up in the morning and everything in your home is harmonious between you and your children and by the time you go to bed at night it's like a war zone relationally. Just, just think about how quickly... Things could go from being good or very good to, to, to I have no clue what just happened to me. Why is it so hard? And Paul's answer to that is in chapter 6, verse 10 through 13, where he says this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I mean, why why is it so hard? Because we're in a war. And the objective the enemy has is to tear down this peace. The enemy against God is determined to destroy or defile or or damage what is bringing God great glory. That God could restore peace to a universe that Satan had destroyed by deceptive words, that that God could restore peace, shalom, is an amazing thing and it brings him universal praise and universal glory. And, And so Satan is determined to go at that peace and destroy it, or mar it, or, or, or damage it, so that God's glory would not be recognized. And so instead of being praised, God would actually be mocked. That's why it's so hard. And so if we're going to understand how to, to engage effectively in this war, what exactly... Does Paul exhort us to do? And, and I just want us to rehearse this in our minds as we get to this first piece of armor. What is it that Paul wants us to do? And the answer is he wants us to stand. He wants us to stand. You can see it in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You can see it again in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then when we get to verse 14, it's the first thing Paul says, stand. So what are we supposed to do in the middle of this war? And Paul says, you have one duty, you have one responsibility, you have one objective and that objective is to stand. So what in the world does he mean by stand? And maybe the best way to understand that is for Paul to tell us. And he actually gives us the same word, but he puts a little preposition at the front of it. And he uses the idea of withstand. In other words, when you are in the battle and the enemy is coming at you, no matter when it happens, no matter how long the battle is, no matter what the enemy throws at you, you have one duty, and that is to withstand the attack. The, the idea there is to resist. The idea there is to resist. Don't give up your ground. Don't cede the position. Don't back up under the attack. Don't, don't sort of lay down and say, okay, then you know what? This enemy is so powerful this blow was so hard that, that I cannot hold this position, so I'm going to retreat. Paul says that isn't what you're expected to do in the battle. You need to actually hold your ground. You need to resist. And in fact, that's exactly what Peter talked about, didn't he? In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, and following, be sober, Be on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith. And James James has an even more clear statement in chapter 4, verse 7, when he says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. So when you think about what's going on around you in light of the peace the shalom, the blessing that God has brought about in your life that you are to enjoy and protect and proclaim and display, when that comes under attack, Paul says to you, now here's your responsibility. Stand your ground. Resist the devil. And that brings me really to a second question, and that is this. How in the world do I have any hope of doing that, given the strength of the enemy, Given the number of forces available to him, given the complexity of the schemes and the tactics that he is using, how in the world do I have any hope of resisting him? And Paul's answer to that is this there is a foundational truth that will give you hope that is unassailable, and that is this God has already resisted the devil through the ministry of a divine champion. Who fought for you? There is a divine champion who has already fought the devil. He has resisted the devil, and the devil fled from him. And you can read the account, actually, if you want to read it, in Matthew chapter 4. You know it as the temptation. You remember how in Old Testament Israel, when the Philistines came against Saul and the armies, the armies were on one side of the field of battle, and the Philistines greatly outnumbered them. They were on the other side and the Philistines had a champion who was fierce. And he would come out every morning and he would come out every evening and he would mock the people of God and he would threaten the army of God. And God raised up a champion. And his name was David. And David went on the field of battle armed with a unique armor. Remember how he tried Saul's armor on and it didn't fit? And he said, I can't, I can't wear this. I can't fight in this. And so he went out on that field of battle, but he was armed with a unique armor. He was armed in the name of the Lord of hosts. In other words, David didn't go out on that battlefield alone. He went there in the strength of the God of heaven. And with a slingshot, and a stone. He felled a massive, experienced warrior. And Paul is saying, I want you to think about how God used the champion to fight the battle for his own people in the Old Testament. God is doing the same thing for you. He has raised up a descendant of David, and he is using the Word of God to defeat the enemy and that's why Paul says now look when you go out you don't go in your own strength you don't go in your own armor notice what he says in verse 10 finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might you go in the strength of this champion you say well I don't understand how this champion thing works and Paul says, well, I've been telling you all about it in the book of Ephesians, and I've been using a little phrase to help you understand your relationship to this champion. I've been talking to you about being in Christ. And we we mentioned this briefly last week. That's the idea that there is a, a, an, an indissolvable relationship that you now have with Jesus Christ, your champion, when you became a Christian, when God put you together. There is an association, an indissolvable association that you now have with Jesus Christ. It is a, a formal association. It is legal. It's legally binding. It's spiritual. It's personal. It's intimate. It's marked by unswerving loyalty and unfailing devotion and unimaginable, unbroken affection. And Paul says, the only way I know how to even give you insight into that unbreakable bond and unbreakable union that you have with this champion is human marriage. When two people are bound together in an indissolvable union. And so when you go out to fight, that's the strength that you carry. That's the armor that you bear. Paul describes it in Romans as an armor that is light, light. Put on the armor of light. And then he's gonna say a little later in Romans, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And by doing that, you will not make any provision for the desires of the flesh. And so Paul says, you're to resist the devil and you're to do it in a strength That God supplies and so that brings me to the third question this morning that I have in my mind and that is this how in the world do I actually access that strength how do I go about being strengthened with the strength of God and Paul's answer to that in this text is this you strengthen yourself in the Lord when you take up the armor how do you do this How do you put on the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you strengthen yourself with this armor that he describes in Romans as an armor of light? How do you do this? You do this when you put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you take up the armor. And that's exactly how he describes it here in our text. He talks about taking on or putting on like you would put on clothing. He says you put on three pieces of armor that, that you wear all the time. And in fact, he says, you are not ready to encounter the devil at any time in any place. You are not ready for that until you put these pieces of armor on. And so he says, let me describe them to you. You need to put on truth like you would put on a belt. You need to put on righteousness, the righteousness that Christ won for you. You need to wear that righteousness like you would wear a breastplate. And there is a confidence, a stability, a preparation, a readiness that needs to mark you and that, that, that comes into your life when you put on the peace, the shalom that God won for you and you wear that peace like a Roman soldier would strap on his battle shoes so he couldn't be knocked off the field of battle by an enemy push who came against it. So you're to put on Certain pieces of this armor that Christ won for you. And then you are to take up things. You are to take up, for example, the helmet to protect you. And that helmet is the assurance that you really do possess and will one day have all of the full benefits of the salvation that Christ won for you and granted you. Take up a helmet made of salvation, take up a shield that consists of the doctrines that God has given you to believe because through these doctrines you will be able to recognize any falsehood and quench any temptation that Satan throws against you and then take up and wield a spiritual sword, a sword the Spirit has given you by which our own champion defeated the devil three times when he said in those temptations, it is written. So this morning we are going to look and zero in on the first of those pieces of armor that Paul says we are to strap on. If we are going to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, here's the way you do it. You strap on the armor that Christ himself won for you. And the first piece of armor is this piece that is described in verse 14 as a belt of truth. And so I want us to look at Three things about this belt this morning, all right? Number one, I want us to ask and answer the question, what exactly is it? When Paul says, put on the belt of truth, what is this belt, all right? So let's talk about its nature. And, and the nature of this belt is described in the two words that Paul uses, the word fastened or girded that you see in the NASB, uh as you read the Nasby, and the word waist or Loins. The idea of girding up your waist or girding up your loins. So, so understanding how this belt works involves strapping on something around a particular part of our life. And so let's, let's talk about that for a minute. The, the word that Paul uses when he says fasten on or strap is, is a word that describes putting on a piece of clothing. Paul has already used this language, hasn't he, in chapter 5 when he tells us to put off the old man and to put on the new and then he describes what that spiritual clothing should look like in our life so we're understanding when Paul says strap on he's talking about putting on something in our life in the old testament this was often used this term was often used to describe somebody strapping on a weapon for example in judges 3:16 one of the early judges of Israel a man named Ehud made a two-edged sword and he strapped it to his right thigh under his garments. That's the word. In Judges 18, 600 men of the tribe of Dan are described as being armed with weapons of war. They have have strapped on weapons of war. That's the idea behind this word. And in Psalm 45, the ancient hymn writers of Israel, the sons of Korah, celebrated King David going out to battle and exclaimed about him, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. So the idea here, whatever is going on here, it means you need to strap on something. And where you are to strap this on is your waist or your loins. So what in the world does the Bible mean when it says gird up your loins? We don't talk that way. We we just don't use that expression today. But in the Old Testament, the idea there would be this. Your waist, your thighs, your loins would be the source of life and strength. When the Bible wanted to talk about the idea of new image bearers coming into the world, he described them as the fruit of your loins. When when God wanted to talk about strength and, and fortitude, he described it in terms of your waist or your loins. And so the idea of strapping on or girding up your, your belt around your loins was the idea of being prepared. Get ready for strenuous activity. Get ready for a military endeavor. This is what uh, we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter says, prepare your minds for action. The idea there's gird up the loins of your mind and some of your bibles actually use that language and so the idea there is that we are to strap something around us that will prepare us for strenuous activity and maybe even for military action and the thing that we are to strap around us will provide stability and it will provide accessibility in in battle times if if you were a soldier In the Roman army, you would wear this and it would it would do two things. It would protect a very important part of your body, but it would also be the place where you would hang your sword. You would strap on your sword so that you had easy access to this. It would gird up your tunic if you were working. Or, you were, or or needing to do some strenuous activity. It would gird up your robe so that you weren't tripping or your robe wasn't getting in the way of your activity. So whatever Paul is talking about, we are to put it on and it needs to be accessible to us and it needs to prepare us so that we are not caught and, and we don't trip in the heat of the battle. So what is it we're supposed to strap on? And the answer is truth. That's what the belt is. The belt is truth. And Paul has been talking about truth a good bit in the book. In chapter 1, he talks about God being the author and the source of all truth. And because God is the source of all truth, he is faithful to his truth. And that's why the Messiah could say in Psalm 31, Into your hands I commit my spirit, you have ransomed me, O God of truth. This is a very stunning statement because when this was actually stated, the Messiah was hanging on a cross at the lowest point of his life, and he had accessible to him a weapon, and the weapon was the truth about God. And the truth about God was this, God, you are a God who is always true, and you made promises to me, and so I rest in you, even on this cross. So God is the source of truth. Christ is the embodiment of truth. The living word, John 1, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth come by Jesus Christ. And in John fourteen six, we all know this verse, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth, Christ embodied, the embodiment of truth, is actually written down for us in the written word. We could say it this way. The living word, Jesus, has now been explained and, and, and proclaimed through the written word of God. So the living word is married to the living or the written word, And that word is truth. And that's that's exactly what Jesus prayed in John 17 when he asked the Father to sanctify us by truth. And then he says, your word is the truth that will do this. And so that word is how we are saved and it is what God uses to sanctify us. It's what the Spirit of God teaches us in Ephesians chapter four, verse 20. Paul says, this is not how you learn Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him. As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Christ has caused the Holy Spirit to teach us truth, and then we have a responsibility now to confess that truth, to agree to it. That's the idea in Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love confessing together that we believe the truth and then obeying that truth, speaking each one of you true to his neighbor. And then in 3 John chapter 3, walking in that truth. I was glad when the brethren came, John said, and testified to your truth or the truth about you. In other words, that is how you are walking in truth. And so Paul says this, if you want to be strengthened with the strength that God provided if you want to fight in the strength and in the armor of your champion here's the first thing you have to do you have to have a meaningful commitment to an embracing of truth you need to strap it on your life and that brings me to the second question and that is this why why truth why is this so foundational why is it so important and the answer is this Truth is foundational to who we are in Christ. I mean, think about this. Truth is actually the first line of attack. When Satan comes to you and he's going to attack any part of you or he's going to come in that evil moment and he is going to try to tear down the shalom that God has established, here is, this is always where it starts. He's always going to present to you a Deception. And we shouldn't be surprised, that's his nature, right? He, he, is, he is marked inerrantly by truth, and, and he is the, I'm sorry, by falsehood, and he is actually the source of all falsehood. So do you remember all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when he first showed up, he had a question, and the question was what? Did God really say? This has always been a war over words. From the very beginning, it's always been a war over words. Take any sin you've ever committed in your life, take any defeat you've ever experienced from Satan in your life, take any one of those things, and it began when you stopped believing the right words. And you started leaning on your own understanding, and it led you to the wrong words. And that's why when, when, when Satan comes at you, his chief weapon is deception. It is foundational to every one of his strategies. Remember, he has many schemes, but every one of those schemes, every one of those strategies starts at a starting point that is the same. It is, it is deception. And that's why Paul says, listen, when you go up against that enemy, it doesn't matter what strategy he rolls out. It doesn't matter what tactic he tries to employ. If you wear this belt, you will withstand him. It's truth. It's foundational to who we are. It's foundational to what we do. We are to display that truth. I mean, we are the truth. We have been brought into the truth. It's foundational to our identity. Paul says this: you know, you you are not just in the light; you actually are light. You used to be darkness. So one of the ways Paul talks about truth and error is is he uses the idea of darkness and light. And he used he he said, "You were a son marked by darkness. You were a child marked by darkness. And now you are light. You're not just in the light. The lights didn't just go on for you. You are actually light." Light marks you in your inner man, and when you stand in your glorified body, that light is going to radiate like it did when Jesus was transfigured. You are light. It's foundational to who you are. And and now that light has a function. You are to display something to the world. You as the church in 1 Timothy 3.15 are the pillar and the support of that truth, If the world wants to see truth and know truth and understand truth and experience truth, there is a place where God would say, now you need to go there and you will see truth, you will know truth, you will experience truth, you will be blessed by truth. And that place is a community of people who are truth. You are the pillar where where God displays it and you are the support you are the one place on the planet where the truth resides in an undiluted way. And that's why you're to use the truth as a foundational means to stand victoriously for Christ. That's why Jesus looked at people in John 8 and he said, you will know the truth and the truth will what? Remember that line? The truth will make you free. And then there's a stunning verse in John chapter 2, First John chapter 2, John says, I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. How did we do this? And the answer is truth. And that brings us to our final thing this morning, and that is this. So how do I use this belt of truth effectively? How do I use this belt effectively? I, I was reading an, an ancient Puritan writer this week who wrote an, a massive um, three-volume work on this armor, and it is stunning what he wrote. And he used an illustration that just really caught my mind. I want to share it with you this morning. He talked about a miser who had over the course of his life accumulated many, many bags filled with all manner of gold and silver and, and beautiful precious stones and gems and jewels. And he had those bags tightly tied up and and he would go in the room where these bags were every day and he would just sit in the midst of the bags. He would, he would hold the bags in his lap. He would, he, would, he would just rejoice in in the treasure that he had in these bags. But he never opened the bags. And so one day... <clears throat> A thief came into that room and replaced the bags. Left the same bag number of bags that were there with the same outer look. But inside the bags that he left, he placed brick and pebbles and straw and, and bits of broken glass and, uh, and left those bags. And he took the bags with treasure. <clears throat> and the miser never knew the difference. He came in the room every day and was just as happy with the bricks and the pebbles and the broken pieces of glass as he was, or or as he had been when he had the gold. Why? Because he never opened the bags. And, you know, I thought to myself as I was reading that illustration so many times, that's like, that's exactly what happens to me. I have this majestic truth, this treasure that God has given to me in his word And because I don't know it or I don't look at it or I don't read it or I just pull up some familiar verse, I never go inside and I never receive it. When Satan steals it away from me, it's a long time sometimes before I ever discover the loss. And so how do I use truth effectively? Well, I would suggest to you that there are a number of things that we need to do. We need to read it and hear it regularly thoughtfully and accurately. Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. How many of us have been knocked off our worthy walk because we did walk and we did sit and we did listen to the wrong words. So what protected the psalmist? His delight is in the Torah of God, in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. Paul said to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed because he rightly handles, he accurately handles the word of God. So we must read it and hear it regularly. We must receive it eagerly and submit to it willingly. Peter said this, like like newborn babes, Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Do you realize that as you come to church on Sunday or you go to an equip hour or you read your Bible in the morning, you are actually arming yourself for the battle that God knows is coming your way that day? We need to read. We need to receive the word and submit to James 1.21, laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And in Luke 6, Jesus had a very piercing question. Why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I say? We must apply the word correctly and employ it consistently. Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is inspired and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. James said, prove yourself to be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer who deludes himself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. But one who looks intently at the perfect law of liberty and abides by it not becoming a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. And then we must rest in the word confidently. That's, I think, what Paul was saying, Colossians, when he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, and with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We must rest in the word completely and trust in it confidently we need to trust what it has to say we need to receive its warnings we need to appropriate its promises god has given to us truly a wonderful piece of armor the truth the truth that christ is one for us the truth the spirit of god has enlightened us to the truth that is now in us and if we are going to strengthen ourselves in that truth, we are going to have to have a more than casual relationship with the word of truth. And we need to notice how that word works. I wrote something to the worship leaders this week as I was meditating on this text. I think we have to do what the writer of Hebrews talked about in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. We have to hold on. We have to hold hard, grasp the profession of our faith without wavering. And this is what I said. We must not stop merely at understanding the truth accurately. It's not enough just to understand and say, oh, I I think I understand what Paul meant now. I think I have a better understanding of Ephesians. It's not enough. We We actually have to savor that truth with every part of our life. And so we can't stop until our mind fully understands our will cheerfully submits, our conscience is educated and shaped, our heart loves, our hands perform, our feet walk in it, our mouth speaks and celebrates, and our memory savors the truth that we are reading and learning in God's Word. Have you done that? Or does the truth just sort of come in your eye and then it's gone? Do you take the time to bring every part of yourself in line with that truth? Your mind, your heart, your conscience, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your memory. Do you celebrate the truth relentlessly? Do you read the truth? Do you pray the truth? Do you sing the truth? Do you live the truth? I want to end with... mm one practical way in which this works. And I want you to see how the belt actually functions. Because at the end of the day, all of this great truth that Paul has given us, you have to strap on and you have to take out with you. So how do you do that? So I want you to think in your mind of a very familiar passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2. We read about Christ laying aside the beauty, the glory, the privilege of his deity he didn't stop being God he just laid aside all of the outward manifestations of it all of the honors that were associated with it and all of the ability to exercise certain parts of that independently he laid all of that aside and the bible says he humbled himself and the way he humbled himself is he took upon himself a human body just like ours like yours a human body that could feel pain, that, that had to learn how to walk, it had to learn how to talk, it had to learn how, how to move and, 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 and live in ancient Israel. He took upon himself humanity and all of its frailness. And then the Bible says that humility manifested itself in a certain way. Obedience. Think about the obedience that Jesus Christ rendered in that human body to flawed parents that as part of the Trinity he had actually created. Think about that. Think about the obedience that he rendered to unjust civil authorities like the Roman governors. And then the Bible says it didn't stop there. He humbled himself and became obedient even unto death and then you stop and think about the kind of death that's talked about there it was the cruelest most shame-filled death imaginable the roman crucifixion the roman form of execution he became obedient you say well how in the world is that using the belt of truth well that's the truth correct And then here's what happens to me at least. I look at that obedience and then I take my little obedience and I put it up against that and what happens to me? I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. And when I think about my obedience that I work so hard to offer God Man, God, I got up this morning and I, I promised you I wasn't going to sin. I got in the word. I, I read your word. I, I, I'm reminded of the righteous man falling seven times. And I got up and, 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 and God, I was really, really, I memorized your word. I quoted your word and I'm still back here. And this little broken down obedience that I keep offering to you is nothing compared to this matchless obedience that your son offered. And so one of two things happens to me. Maybe this does not happen to you, but it happens to me. I get super discouraged. I'm like, why even try? Because no matter how hard I try and no matter how hard I confess, no matter what I try to do, I, I know all the verses. I'm, I'm getting up in the morning and I'm taking an extra time in the Word and, and I'm still rendering at the end of the day this broken down obedience. And I get discouraged. Or I do something else, I'm going to work harder. I'm gonna get up tomorrow and I'm, going to, I'm just gonna work harder and I put another brick in the wagon that God has called me to pull and pretty soon at the end of a month, I got so many bricks in the wagon, the wagon is crushing me. I'm gonna work harder and I'm gonna polish the obedience and it's gonna shine and you know what? I'm gonna take my little broken down obedience and I'm gonna paint it and I'm gonna restore it and it's gonna look really good. And then Paul says, Now, wait a minute. Did you ever read Romans 6? Romans 5? Because actually, what what you should be strapping on is this you should be laying down your little broken down obedience because all of this beautiful obedience that Jesus rendered is what was imputed to you. That's actually your obedience. That little monopoly money obedience, that little broken down duct taped obedience that you painted and put a little, you know, smiley face on, that obedience is, is not the obedience that God ever sees, no matter how much you throw it up to him. When he looks at you, he sees you clothed in a magnificent obedience that was imputed to you because of what Jesus did for you. That's your obedience. And when Satan comes to discourage you, pull out that obedience as your sword. When Satan comes to tempt you to just work harder and be more legalistic in your pursuit of obedience, pull out the fact, the truth, that God has already given you the most magnificent obedience you could ever have. And it was the obedience that was won for you by Christ. And it is yours because of this amazing union that you have with him that will never be dissolved. And you know what that does? You say, yeah, I know exactly what it does. It takes all the pressure off so I can go and do whatever I want to do and I can sin as much as I want. And Paul says, you missed it. You missed the whole thing if that's how you're thinking. You didn't put the belt of truth on at all. You bought the wrong words. That's exactly what Satan wants you to think. Shall we sin that grace may more abound? May it never be, Paul says to the Romans. No, 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 no. When I see this beautiful obedience and I realize it is mine, you know what comes to my heart? This incredible gratitude to God. God, thank you. I I can't even imagine you doing that. I I can't even imagine what that took. But but God, thank you. And then thank you that it is mine. And you know what it produces in me? Glad-hearted joyful, responsive obedience. I say to God, God, whatever you want, wherever you want, for however long you want, because of what you have done for me, that's a belt that should strap every part of you, because it is our strength.